We will be starting today in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, and we will read through verse 31. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke writes for us in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 and following. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? The people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, and Sovereign Lord, we come to you today asking for your help, for your guidance as we study your word. I ask, Lord, that as I preach, that you would guide my words, that you would speak through me as I preach this sermon that I have prepared. Lord, I know that I am a man and infallible, and that these are people here in these pews that are human beings and fallible. We all err. And so, Lord, we ask as, as we are, are able to err, Lord, we appeal to you who are perfect in all your ways. And we ask that you would keep us faithful to your word, faithful to the text. And Lord, I pray that as we study, as we read, that we might not be simply faithful to it, Lord, but committed to it, taught by it, instructed, challenged, and uplifted. I pray today, Lord, that your word would have its full effect in our lives and in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a high schooler, I had the opportunity at the church where I was at, at First Southern, uh, to take a self-defense class taught by a member at the church there. He was a Black belt in a few different kinds of martial arts, um, one of which being some form of jujitsu. If you press me on what form, I, I can't tell you. Uh, but uh, he was gracious enough, kind enough to take his knowledge, his skills, and, and open up a self-defense class and teach this form of, of jujitsu to anyone who would like to come and, and be taught self-defense and learn uh, how to protect themselves, defend themselves if they should ever need to. And uh, so me and my brothers, we were excited to, along with a few other high schoolers and a few other people, uh, to take this self-defense class. And I'll never forget the first, uh, first day in this self-defense class, and, and honestly, the first couple weeks in this self-defense class, which I found to be very, very weird, very strange. And the reason I found it to be strange is that 
what our instructor told us, and I've been told that this is common in lots of forms of martial arts and self-defense, is that the first thing we need to learn how to do, believe it or not, is that we need to learn how to fall. It sounds funny, but this is what we spent the first couple weeks of our class learning how to do, was learning how to fall. Now, he could have been lying to me, because this would have been a pretty good practical joke to play on a group of high schoolers, because it was a pretty funny scene to look around this gym and see these high schoolers bending over and falling backwards on a mat and slapping the floor. Imagine just 30 high schoolers curling over, falling back, and slapping the floor as they fell. It's kind of a silly scene, right? And yet, it was essential in learning self-defense that we learn first how to fall. And it didn't take long to realize why that is. Because just a few weeks after that, we were learning how to do certain holds and learning how to do certain throws in this particular form of martial arts. Throws that involve even flips in the air and then you come crashing down to the floor on the mat or on the pad. And if you didn't know how to fall correctly, then you were likely going to do some serious damage to yourself. You were going to break a neck, hurt your back, who knows what else. And so as strange as it seemed and as simple and maybe to some even foolish as it seemed, it was essential for those of us who were learning this art of self-defense to learn first how to fall. It was going to help us down the road. It was becoming, going to become a building block that everything else was going to be built on. And so I, I bring this up to say, for us today, as we study in God's word, as we continue what sort of has become a, a mini series on boldness, uh, as this is now going to be our third sermon that's going to have this particular theme of boldness in the life of a believer, we come now and conclude this mini series of three sermons talking about boldness specifically centered around prayer. Prayer is something that we as Christians understand to be fundamental, rudimentary. One of the first things that many of us did when we became a Christian was prayed some form of a prayer, confessed to the Lord our sin, cried out for him to him for mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Prayer is the most basic building block of the Christian life. And yet for many of us, prayer is something that we grab as our first building block, but then relegate to the back burner, push to the back of our shelves, and never foster, never grow in our prayer life as believers. My hope today that as we study the life of the early church, we will see the importance, in fact, the, the power of prayer, as cliche as it might seem to say, as the early church here, as, as they have been uh, facing persecution, as they have, have come now and declared what these Jewish leaders have commanded them, as they've called them in after they were preaching Jesus Christ, and they, they commanded them, do not speak in the name of Jesus any longer. And, and persecution had now begun. And the very next thing that we see the believers do here in our passage is that they immediately go to the Lord in prayer. And so my hope today is that we will gain insight into, into what true and right prayer is and, and how we ought to pray and what we ought to pray and 
when we ought to pray as believers. And so those will become our three points for today. How to pray, what to pray, and when to pray. And though it might seem very fundamental, very rudimentary, I would argue that each and every one of us as believers needs, in fact, desperately needs for many of us to foster our prayer life. And specifically, as we will see here in our passage today, to foster it together as the body. And so let's first of all look at our text and understand how to pray. Now we will not be given here in our passage an exhaustive list of all that could be said about prayer. But yet I do think there are lots of insights that we glean that we can gain from reading in the life of the early church here in Acts 4, seeing how they pray, seeing what they pray and when they pray, and we might be informed in our Christian lives and today as the church. Many aspects of Christianity in the West, I would argue, uh, have become very privatized, very individualized. We as Christians oftentimes think of our faith as something that is our own. It is private. It is between me and the Lord. You might even have heard people say, uh, my relationship with the Lord, my faith is none of your business. It's between me and the Lord. Seems kind of a a very uh, unique thing to our time to say. Certainly, if you look at the early church here in Acts, you would have a hard time imagining someone questioning them about their faith or what they believe and them claiming, well, what I believe is between me and the Lord. It's none of your business. Certainly was not the attitude of the early church. They were pleased and, and happy to proclaim their faith, what they believed about Jesus Christ to the world. But unfortunately for us here in the West, a lot of what we do as believers, a lot of our faith, our religion has become privatized and individualized and I think to the detriment of the church. Because one of the first things that we notice about how to pray and we learn from the life of these believers, from their example, is that we are to pray corporately. We are to pray together as a body of believers. We are to pray united with one another. We look at verse 24 and what do we see? This is right after the Uh, The apostle uh, Peter and John were released and they went to tell their friends, reported to them all that was said. And when they heard it, that is the rest of the church, they lifted their voices together to God. They are not they did not return and then tell each of them, hey, listen, I want you to go home to your to your bed or to your prayer closet or wherever it might be. And I want you to pray to the Lord in this way. With regards to these things, it's good for us to pray alone, to have a a place maybe where we go to be uh, alone with the Lord and with his word and to pray. That's not a bad thing. I'm not knocking that. But that's not what the believers do here. They, upon receiving this news, immediately go to their knees together, lift their voices together to pray to the Lord. Not individualistically, not privately, but corporately, together with one another. And I know for many of us this is hard. We, we have a hard time understanding what it means to pray corporately. And this for various reasons. For, for some of us, it's just because we're afraid, we're nervous to speak in front of other people, to pray out loud. And therefore, we, even in public settings, even in corporate prayer settings, we think, well, we will all be here but let's just let this one person pray and we'll call it corporate prayer. 
And there are occasions for that. Every Sunday morning, you hear myself and Aaron and, and Robert pray, and our hope is that you will be praying along with us. But that's kind of not the picture we see here in Acts. Rather, what we see is that they lifted their voices together and prayed to the Lord. It's good for us as believers to pray with one another, to hear each other pour out our our hearts before the Lord, to, to raise supplication to the Lord, to offer him praise and worship. And I think especially for those of us in here who, who have been through difficulties, who are facing hardships, we've experienced at times the benefit of having a brother or sister in Christ pray out loud on our behalf to the Lord. There's a great blessing, a great benefit that comes to the church that unites us together that grows our fellowship and that deepens our love of the lord when we together pray out loud with and for one another and so we see first of all here that how we are to pray is that we're to pray corporately what we also see from our text is that we are not only to pray corporately but we're to pray biblically it's fascinating to me what the church does here in this prayer Because notice what they do. The church here recites what the Lord wrote through David in Psalm chapter 2. We see in verse 24 and 25, and 25 specifically, they read, they they recite to the Lord the Psalm of David in Psalm 2, where they said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is an exact quotation of Psalm chapter 2 that has now entered its way, made its way into their prayer. And what's amazing about this this passage that they have now entered into their prayer is they pray it. They pray to the Lord, the Psalms, and then immediately after that, apply it to their lives. As they say, directly following that, in verse 27, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, they just said previously in Psalm 2, that they gather against the Lord's anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. What the church does here is something that we ought to do in our prayer lives, and that is that they take the very word of God and they pray that back to the Lord. If this is new to you, then it probably does sound strange. Because for for most of us, when we think of prayer, and we've been told this, we we think it has to be a conversation between us and God. It needs to be very organic. It needs to be like talking to a friend. And in a sense, there is some truth to that. And my point is not to refute that. But if, for the sake of our prayers being organic, for our prayers being natural, being conversational, we don't take the scriptures and use them in our prayers, then I think, frankly, we're neglecting the examples that we see in scripture. In scripture, the the church in Acts regularly, when they pray together, the scriptures find their way into their prayers. They read and recite to the Lord the, the very words of God and recite them back to him. In this case, the Psalms, as it is in many cases, but even other passages of Scripture. Or even more than that, consider Jesus Christ, who regularly prayed, and when he prayed, 
prayed the Psalms back to the Lord. This act of praying scripture is something that, that I think we ought to develop, that we ought to foster in our prayer lives. In fact, there's a, a great book regarding this exact topic by Dr. Don Whitney. It's called Praying the Bible. And in the book, he, he argues that as believers and following the examples we see in scripture, we benefit from and deepen our prayer life when we pray with our Bibles opened up in front of us. Why might this be the case? Well, there are various reasons. One reason is that if you all in here have ever experienced this, if you've been a Christian for very long and are not praying the Bible, you know that it can become very easy for our prayers to become repetitive, for us to say the same things over and over and over again. In fact, if you listen to me pray, you probably pick up on a few phrases that I say regularly when I pray. We all do this. We all have this tendency. And these things can make prayer seem boring, mundane, and therefore hard to do. Something that we easily cast aside. By taking the scriptures, taking, for example, the Psalms and opening up the book of Psalms, reading it, and then applying that in our prayer lives, praying that back to God, we will find that our prayer lives will take on a whole new vibrance, a whole new uh, dynamic attitude that we are not just praying the same things over and over again. Lord, bless me and my family. Lord, keep us. Lord, be with us, whatever the case may be. Because when you read the Psalms, you begin to see other things being drawn out. Lord, cause us to meditate on your word day and night. Lord, cause us to Walk in the way of wisdom. Lord God, shepherd us. Lead us beside the still waters. Bring us safely through the valley of the shadow of death as we so often find our way into it. This is the way we ought to pray. And, and the book by Don Whitney that I mentioned lays it out beautifully, easily, and it's a very short and easy read. And, and we have made these available to you. You might not know it. I'll, I'll tell you again, and I've actually put some out on the back table back there. Uh, but we have a whole big box of these books, and I would encourage you, if you want to know more about what it means, what it looks like to, to pray the Bible, to open up God's Word and pray with it open in front of you, take one of those books. If you haven't taken one already, if you don't already have that, they're, they're free. They're back there on the back. Take one of those and read through that. Read through it with your family, with your spouse. Learn about what it means to pray and how we can take the very word of God as the church in Acts did and pray it back to the Lord. And one of the benefits that I think you'll also find is, is that it helps us to stay faithful. It helps us to pray in line with the very will of God as we take his word and pray it back to him. So we learn from the early church that we're called to pray biblically. We're also called, and, and we see in this passage that we ought to pray theologically. This is a very theological, very doctrinally rich prayer that the church prays here, where after reading the very word of God, they then apply it and apply it in a way that is extremely theological, taking this psalm and applying it to Christ, and then out of that, applying it to their lives and their prayers where they say, truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. This is rich in what many of us would consider to be a difficult theology and doctrine coming out of the prayer of the early church. Here they are praying in a way that that is pointing to God and that has a clear and definitive understanding of the sovereignty of God. J.I. Packer in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, as he addresses this frankly difficult doctrine for us to wrap our heads around, difficult doctrine for us to embrace as it raises so many difficulties, so many questions, and yet is so clearly taught in Scripture. He talks about how what we actually see is that people who, who say that they do not believe in the complete sovereignty of God, as some do, who struggle to accept this doctrine in, in conversation and in their lives, for true believers, when it comes to their prayer life, this doctrine inevitably comes out. He says that if you simply look at a person's prayer life, if they are truly a believer, then what you will see is that they do actually believe in the sovereignty of God. He says this in his book, How then do you pray? Do you ask God for your daily bread? Do you thank God for your conversion? Do you pray for the conversion of others? If the answer is no, then I can only say that I do not think you are yet born again. He says, if the answer is yes, well, that proves that whatever side you may have taken in debates on this question in the past, in your heart, you believe in the sovereignty of God, no less firmly than anyone else. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all agreed. When we come to the Lord and we pray for our needs to be met, when we come to the Lord and we pray that he would save our family members, that he would save our friends, that he would change their heart as so many even pray. What are we appealing to in that, past, in that prayer? We're appealing to the utmost sovereignty of God, to do all that he wills, to exercise his control and his decree over all things, even over us. That is no less true of the early church. As they pray, they acknowledge God's sovereignty, his decree, his will, and his hand, even over these sinful acts of these wicked men. Let all that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, as they committed this grave sin of murdering the Son of God, in all that they did, they could do nothing more or less than all that his hand and his plan predestined to take place. This is a great testament to the all-complete sovereignty of God, that nothing is outside his scope, nothing is outside of his control or his will. Our God is not a reactive God who's constantly going, oh, shoot, I didn't want that to happen. Well, let me fix it. Oh, shoot, I didn't want that to happen. Let me fix it. Well, that's okay, but let me make it a little bit better. Everything that happens on this earth, in our lives and in the lives of others, is a part of God's sovereign plan, all that his hand and his plan has predestined. This is good for us to recognize. Though sovereignty 
And specifically, the sovereignty of God is a difficult doctrine for us to begin to wrap our heads around. It is by no means a doctrine that we should then cast aside because it is simply too difficult to understand. I think far too often this is what we do with difficult doctrines like God's sovereignty. We say, man, I really don't understand it, and therefore I really would rather just not think about it. But for the early church, this doctrine was front and center in their prayers. Why else would we pray if we are not praying to a sovereign God who has control over all things? If he is not sovereign, then our prayers are worthless. Let us pray like the early church, with a deep understanding and recognition of God and who he is and his control over all things. That is how we ought to pray as we learn from the early church. And now what I want us to look at next from the early church is point number two, what to pray. What ought we to pray as the early church prayed? Now this, again, is not going to be an exhaustive list of all that can and should be included in our prayers. There are sorts of of lists like that, and, and certainly we could name a few things that as Jesus gives us a model prayer, how we are to pray, we should give him our thanks and our praise, our supplications, our intercessions, all these kinds of things, confession of sin. All of this ought to be a part of our prayer life as believers, but specifically there's a few things that we see from the church here that must be included in our prayer lives. First of all, praise and glory to God. The church starts their prayer by saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, ascribing to this God that they are now coming to in prayer the credit, the glory, and the honor for all things. For he has made all things in heaven and on earth and on the sea and all the things in them. He deserves all the glory, all the praise, all the credit, and that's what they start with. And God is not up in heaven going, yeah, 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 I know that. Get to the next part. He does know that. But guess what? God also knows all your needs, all your supplications. He knows all your sin, yet we still ought to confess those things to him. And so we are called to come and declare to the Lord that which he already knows, that he is powerful, that he is mighty to save. Declare back to God the praise and glory that is due his name. Because we're to do more in our prayers than simply ask God for things. Yet so often that's what our prayers are exclusively consumed with. We come to the Lord only when we want something from him or when we need something from him. As parents, we can understand how exhausting this is and how annoying this is. When our children come to us only to ask us for things. That would be really frustrating, wouldn't it? If every time your child came up to say something to you, however old they might be, if all they ever did was to come and ask you for this or ask you for that, we would be really annoyed and frustrated by that, wouldn't we? And yet so often that's the way we approach our God. We come to him in prayer, but we do so only when we need something. Only when we are bringing our requests before him that they might be granted and we might be given what we so want or desire or even need. And it's good to ask God for that which we need. It's good to come to him and make requests, make supplication. But certainly the early church didn't limit their prayers to that and neither should we. We are called to come before him and 
Worship him in our prayer. Ascribe to him his glory and his honor that he is due. And so be blessed by this truth, reminding ourselves of the reality of who God is. We're called to pray and praise him and bring him glory and honor. We're also, when we understand what the early church prayed for, see that we are to pray for our obedience to him. Notice what specific petition these Christians make to Yahweh in this prayer. They come to him in verse 29. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. God has already commanded that they do this, hasn't he? In the Great Commission, God has said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. God has already commanded them to do this, to go and preach the gospel, to go and grow his kingdom, to go and proclaim with boldness. And yet, what the church now has come to ask of the Lord, they've come to ask that which he has commanded him, commanded them. They've come to pray and ask the Lord to work obedience in them. It might seem strange that the believers here pray for, uh, that they would proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations since that's the very thing God commanded them to do. And since God has already declared that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, this is already a part of God's will that he has declared to them. And yet here they now come asking and praying for God's will to be done. It might seem silly to us, but yet that is what we are called to do. In a, a prayer by St. Augustine, a prayer that caused many people great issue, including Arminius, if you're familiar with that name, he prayed this prayer and he asked the Lord, he said, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. That's an interesting prayer, isn't it? that the Lord would grant to us that which he has commanded of us. The point is that the Lord can command things of us, but if we do not come to him in prayer, if we do not seek to be obedient to him and ask for his help, we can be disobedient to those commands. What this ultimately is, is it is a picture of our utter dependence on Christ, even to obey the very things that he has called us to do even to obey the very will of God which he has declared. This is even seen in the model prayer that Jesus gives his disciples, what's often called the Lord's Prayer, as he's speaking to his disciples. In that prayer, Jesus calls them to pray in this way, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I just spent some time talking about the sovereignty of God. How all that he has planned, all that he wills, will come to pass. None of his decrees have ever failed. Why then pray in this way? What is the point of praying that his will will be done when we know it will be? So often we as believers get so hung up on these questions of why it is that the Lord would command us, call us to pray for obedience, pray that his will would be done when we know his will will be. And oftentimes what's happening in this is that we are desperately and, 
and much to our chagrin, seeking to take two biblical truths, that of the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God, and trying desperately to reconcile them in our minds and in our logic, and so often we struggle with that. We struggle with the question of how is it that we could be called to obedience, and yet the Lord's will is always going to be done? How is it that we can be held responsible for our sin when the Lord is sovereign over all things, even over sin? And the answer that many people hate and is a frustrating answer, and we might wish we had a better answer to, but the answer is, I don't know. I don't know how it is that God can hold man responsible for his sin, for his decisions, for his choices, and yet be sovereign over all of them in complete control and will over all of them. And yet the Bible says that he is and that we are still responsible. And so we are called as believers even to pray back to the Lord and ask him that his will would be done in us, that we would be obedient to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, not using the sovereignty of God as a means for laziness, as a as a crutch that we can lean on and say, well, don't worry about it. His will will be done regardless of what I do. To quote one man who also believed in the sovereignty of God and yet was, has, is wholeheartedly for evangelism, David Platt, as he says so rightly, we are plan A. Plan A for God taking the gospel to the nations. And there is no plan B. And that is true even as God is sovereign over all things. Really what we see in this, in this week in our mini-series on boldness is that right here is where the spring is loaded. Right here is where uh, in our prayer lives is where we will begin to see action taking place in our spiritual lives. As Aaron spoke about two weeks ago, as he called us to this kind of boldness. This, and he titled his message, Be Bold. And called us, commanded us as the scriptures do, to be bold and live lives in this way. And as we looked last week and we saw the, the lessons in boldness and even the consequences of this kind of boldness, and my, my hope is that that would have helped to prepare us for what is to come. And yet even still what we are called to now it's to go to our knees and to pray for this kind of boldness. Because it's not enough to just know what is coming, to hear the commission and resolve our, our minds and our wills that we will be bold. But we must also, as the church here does, go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would grant us this kind of radical boldness. Because if we leave this part out, we're going to fall flat. We might be able to run a few feet. We might be able to go a short distance in our, our own strength and with our own talents that God has given us. But apart from the life and, and benefit that is found in prayer, even corporate prayer, we will ultimately fall short and dwindle and fall flat in our boldness. Because it is in our prayer lives that, as I said, the spring is loaded. That we can be prepared that we can actually achieve what God has called us to. I was, uh, as a young man, a teenager, we used to have this 
family tradition of what we called shooting trap or shooting clay pigeons on Thanksgiving, where we would take shotguns and, and load up the clay pigeon thrower, and, uh, and the clay pigeon thrower would throw this little target out there, and you would try and shoot it out of the air with your shotgun. Maybe you're familiar with this. And I'll never forget the, the clay pigeon thrower that we used for years and years and years. It was like from the 1910s, and it had this really, really big spring on it. And you had to just take all of your effort as like a, uh, like a 12-year-old kid. It was all that I could do to pull this thing back and, and lock it into place. And my papa would always warn us, now once that thing is locked, you stay back from it. Don't be standing in front of it. That'll break your leg if that thing goes off while you're, while you're standing there trying to load that thing. But yet every time before you could shoot that clay pigeon, you had to load that spring. You had to prepare for it. You had to get ready. You could stand there all day long knowing what's going to happen, knowing that this shotgun, this 12-gauge shotgun, this 12-year-old kid, that's a, that's a big shotgun. It's about to kick. It's about to blow my shoulder back. So I'm prepared for that. I'm ready for what's coming. I know that I, I, my, my objective is when this target goes out, I'm supposed to shoot it out of the air. I know what I'm called to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. And I know what's going to happen as I do it. But if you never load that spring, nothing's ever going to happen. I mean, you could shoot the clay pigeon off the thrower, but that's going to wreck everything. Ultimately, you have to load that spring. Prayer is that for the life of believers. We can have everything else in order as far as we can tell. We can have our, our Bibles. We can have uh, our commitment to going to church. We can do this and that. We can have read all the right books. But if prayer is lacking, then we are ultimately going to fall short. We are ultimately going to fail because this is God's means of empowering, of strengthening, of emboldening his church for the task that he has given us. I also find it interesting in this prayer by the believers that they don't pray that the Lord would heal and do signs and wonders. They pray that they would boldly proclaim the message as he does heal, as he does perform signs and wonders. Their prayer is that they would boldly proclaim as they have been given by the Lord and as he confirms it by signs and wonders, as he is already doing. Their prayer is essentially, Lord, do what you're going to do and let us be faithful to what you have called us to do as you do it. Their prayer is for boldness. It is not focused on the signs and the wonders and the healings. Those are miraculous. Those are amazing. And it's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong for the Lord to pray that the Lord would show himself to us. But let us not be consumed with those things and neglect the very thing that God has commanded us to do. Rather, let us pray, Lord, as you do your will, whatever that might be, help us to walk in what you have called us to do what you have called us to be, to be faithful to the gospel message and proclaim it with boldness. And this is a difficult thing to pray. It's difficult because as we talked about last week, when we embrace this kind of spiritual boldness, persecution will come. Difficulties will come. This is not the kind of boldness that makes people like you at parties. Quite the opposite. And so it's a prayer for something that is going to, frankly, Make us uncomfortable. And yet here we see the early church in the face of persecution. 
likely knowing full well that it's going to continue to come and it's going to increase. Here they pray for the uncomfortable. They pray for the difficult thing. They pray that the Lord would give them boldness. Not that he would take away the persecution, not that he would remove the hardships, but that in the midst of them, he would strengthen them, embolden them to do what he had called them to do, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and the victory and the freedom and the redemption found in him. Because all of that is worth it. It is worth the suffering. It is worth the persecution. It's worth whatever might come. Lord, grant us the boldness to believe this, to uphold this, and to declare this. And then finally, third and final point, we see from the early church when to pray. It's funny to me that for the early church, it's, it's almost reflexive to go to their knees in prayer. And I say it's funny, but really what it is is when we look at the early church and how they would immediately, and here especially, go to the Lord in prayer. And then when we reflect upon the church today and we see what role does prayer, prayer play in the life of the church today. Oftentimes that role is little to none. Certainly it is not reflexive for us as believers to go to the Lord in prayer. When should we pray? Well, there's a few things we can learn from the early church. Again, not exhaustively. We should pray when we need the Lord's strength. Well, church family, when do we need the Lord's strength? Every day, always, all the time. We as the church, Redeemer Fellowship Church, not to mention us as individuals, we as the church will last very little. We will not last long at all apart from the strength that is found in Jesus Christ. And so let us pray and ask the Lord for strength. Prayer is an essential part of the battle that believers are waging against the enemy. And who is the enemy? Paul tells us in Ephesians, our, our war, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the prince of the darkness of this world. In Ephesians chapter 10, that passage where Paul exhorts the Ephesian church to put on the armor of the Lord, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, pick up the sword of the Spirit. All of these things that he is commanding them to do is there to put on this armor. He concludes in 18 through 20 after telling them all of this and says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. One of the chief weapons, one of the essential tools that we have in our arsenal as we wage this spiritual battle in this life is prayer. And yet oftentimes it is the tool that is most dull in our arsenal the one that we devote the least amount of attention to. We should pray when we need the Lord's strength. We should also pray always before moving forward. The church here has their marching orders. They know what God has commanded them to do. They know the boldness that they are called to, the, the mission to proclaim the gospel to the world around them. And yet even still, before taking a single step further, 
they go to the Lord in prayer. We see an example of the consequences that can come when we don't go to the Lord in prayer in Joshua chapter 9. In that story in Joshua chapter 9, it's the story of the Gibeonite deception. When the people of Israel, as they are, are defeating these various kings and peoples, they have, have made their way through the Red Sea. They have defeated Jericho by the power of the Lord. The Lord has defeated for them Ai. Every step of the way, the Lord is working for his people. And when the Gibeonites see this and hear of this, they come up with this plan. They say, look, we don't want to go up against this people. More specifically, we don't want to go up against their God. So let's come up with a plan. They put on old clothes. They took old wineskins, put on old sandals, and they went out and met them along the way, met the people of Israel, and they deceived them. And they said, we are travelers coming from a long way, coming to worship your God. And so we would ask that you would strike up a deal with us, make a covenant with us that we might serve you and that you might spare us. What was the command that God had given the people of Israel? They were to go into the land of Canaan and they were to kill everyone. They were to clear the land and take what God had given them. They were God's instrument of judgment upon this wicked people here in the land of Canaan. And now the Gibeonites dwelling in the land of Canaan had deceived them, had tricked them, and had gotten them to make a covenant with them and spare them from what God had commanded. The Bible tells us that the people of Israel and Joshua did not seek the Lord. They didn't go to the Lord in prayer, but accepted what these people were telling them and made a deal with them without seeking the counsel of God. And it cost them greatly. They sinned in this because now these people who they were called to destroy, the very enemies of God, were allowed to dwell in the land. And it would come back to bite them later. We see also a good example of Jesus Christ himself. As Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he looked forward, as he knew what was about to come for him, he knew what God had sent him to do. He knew what was in store as he was about to go and die on the cross. Jesus went to the Lord in prayer. Knowing what God had commanded, knowing what God had sent him to do, knowing what was coming for him, and yet still even Jesus went to the Lord in prayer and prayed what we famously know, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. In our lives, every step of our lives, we ought to be seeking the Lord in prayer, seeking his counsel, coming to him, praying for intercession, confessing our sins to him, praising him in all things, just as Jesus himself in the garden did. Let us learn from the apostles, from the early church. Even in Acts chapter 2, 42, this is right after Pentecost, one of the first things that we see from the church, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. The early church was utterly and sincerely and fervently devoted to prayer, both privately and especially corporately, gathering together, 
praying with one another, praying for one another, lifting their voices together in one accord with one another. I want to close with this one last example. Charles Spurgeon wrote a book, a book I was reminded of recently, called Only a Prayer Meeting. And in the book, uh, the book is, is filled with uh, teachings and, and lessons that Charles Spurgeon preached at various prayer meetings at his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And in the very opening uh, lesson in that book, he laments the fact that for so many people, the prayer meeting of the corporate church, the corporate gathering together of believers to pray, has been redu- reduced to this praise, this phrase, only a prayer meeting. You know, it's, it's only a prayer meeting. It's not, not that important for me to go. It's only a prayer meeting. I really would, I would rather get my rest and my sleep than, than go and devote myself to prayer with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I hate, I do not like a, a, a form of preaching that specifically targets and feeds upon the guilt of a congregation. And so my hope today is not to do that to you, I'm not seeking to play on your emotions. I am simply calling us to Scripture and begging that we ask the question, have we reduced corporate prayer in this way to only a prayer meeting? Do we give prayer in the life of the church the seat that it deserves? Do we give it the attention that it deserves? Do we ascribe to it the power that it deserves? Do we believe that there is power in prayer? We see the early church in Acts here pray this prayer. And we see what immediately happens after they had prayed in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We want God to do a mighty thing through our church. We want God to use our congregation in our community, in our workplaces. And yet I think oftentimes this is what we have done. We have reduced corporate prayer to something less than what it is and we have robbed it of its power or at least ignored its power. I would charge that if we are guilty of this as a church, as a people, as individuals, then we ought to be called to repentance to confess to the Lord our sin of neglecting the power of God in prayer, and that we would ask that the Lord would call us back to this picture that we see in the early church of corporate prayer. That we would see the power that's found in it. Though we might not come together at our prayer meetings that we do twice a month and, and, and see the, the building shaken as we pray, that might not happen. But does that mean that the power of God is absent in our prayer? Absolutely not. Church family, let us challenge ourselves to consider whether or not this is true of us, whether or not we have reduced prayer, reduced corporate prayer in this way to only a prayer meeting. Let us see the life of the believers in the early church. Let us look to Christ as our example of prayer and let us devote ourselves in this way. Certainly this is true privately, but corporately as well. Let us devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Let's pray.